0: Promise No Promises, The Tale and the Tongue, Episode 6, Radical Listening. The podcast Promise No Promises unfolds a further chapter, The Tale and the Tongue. This series of new episodes arises from conversations between curator and writer Sonia fernandez Pan and guests from different storytelling practices and world-making experiences. For a conversation to take place, it is sufficient when two people start talking to each other. However, conversations are never happening just between two people. A conversation holds many bodies, places, stories and experiences. It develops languages and creates interpersonal and temporary dialects. Sharing is also a way of collecting seemingly individual circumstances. Our bodies host many narratives, speaking borrowed words and making stories an important part of who we become. Stories travel between bodies, welling in them, always in motion, they have no end. Words make worlds in which reality and its fictions travel through the tongue to become tales. Radical Listening is the sixth episode that follows a conversation with Erika Flores. When describing Erika's work, several terms appear. Curator, artist, performer, writer, researcher, early childhood educator. This multiplicity of terms, which refer both to practices in process and to established roles, also indicates an overflow in words. A word that would be important to add to this list is the notion of in-betweenness, the ability to be in two places at the same time but without being fully in either one of them. It is because of this in-between approach that Erika Flores' projects do not take names or formats for granted, but can take and gather different forms from a shared rhythm and sensibility. Performative exhibitions, danceable lectures, and audiovisual publications are part of her curatorial epistemology and practice. When thinking about a big passion shared with Erika, dancing, I proposed her to start our conversation with a physical gesture – a spoken connection towards the previous podcast with Giovanna Rivero and the gothic realism of today. Her project Un hechizo en el Espacio, a spell in the space, gave us the opportunity to start in a concrete and very important place for Erika, the city of Cali in Colombia, where several artists worked on what she defines as un terro de tierra caliente, hot earth terror. The reality of Cali, marked by a subtle and persistent fatality, makes light converge with gloom within its mythologies and practices of excess. As Erika herself writes in a text with visual shines and shadows, in Kali there's something that is about to arrive but never arrives. There is a suspension of expectations and social promises, which is joined by the suspension of time during the exuberant hours of dancing and partying. In her danceable lecture, "Sobredosis de Amor, Love, Overdose, Erika Flores analyzes the narrative structures of Salsa Rosa and its link with drug dealing. The logic of self-destructive excess is also present in the music, where the political strength of classic salsa rhythms is softened by the love lyrics of Salsa Rosa's songs. But it is not only in sound forms that the drug dealing can be felt, It also develops its own aesthetics, inhabiting bodies, especially women's bodies. Dancing stayed with us during our conversation, being defined by Erika as radical listening. Independent of the types of music that provoke the movement of bodies in so many places in the world, bodies that dance are always bodies that listen in a radical way. They listen from pleasure, from collective energies, from constituent materiality and beyond language. Even more, listening to and reading Erika, I find it possible to think of a radical listening to dance itself in her projects. The history of forms, including that of art, moves in dancing, as do binarisms and third spaces between two movements. In her project, Hegelian Dancers, Dancing makes cosmogony appear in salsa choque, suspending the linear narratives of time. But the body is not only a vessel for dance, it is also a medium that often allows us to understand the rational better than language. As it is also a medium to listen to the environment and to keep moving after times and moments of loss and disorientation. Once again, borrowing Erika's words, When one feels lost in the sound and doesn't know how to move, it is the collective body that sustains us. This meeting with Erika Flores took place at the end of October 2021. Erika was in Cali, and I was in Berlin, two cities widely known for the dance and music happening in them. Although the differences between salsa and techno are great, After talking to Erika, I feel it is possible to say that there are many situations, intensities and narratives that both scenes share and produce. Moreover, I think it is possible to feel a conversation as a manifestation of dancing in which words mingle with body gestures and ideas mirror each other.
1: Tropical Goth was something very present in Cali because some filmmakers from the 70s, Luis Ospina, Carlos Mayolo, and a group of friends, of artist friends, they were very interested in think. okay, Goth and Terror has always been something made in cold weathers. So how would it be a terror made in warmer weathers? So they create all this movement that includes literature and films made with the context and particularities of Colombia, but specifically Cali. And those particularities has to do with the architecture of the sugarcane plantations, and also some local myths. For example, one of the most present and the most important myth, we have one of our main mountains in the city has three crosses installed since, I don't know how many centuries ago. Um, we have this popular belief that the devil came to Cali and they put these crosses in order to echarlo, como to make him run away, but instead what they achieve is the opposite. So the devil is trapped in Cali because of these three crosses installed. And there is this, I don't know, practice or we've been for centuries explaining that we have bad luck, and everything that happens that is bad in Cali is because of the devil. I grew up with that, so I took it for granted
0: for most
1: of my life. It wasn't important for me because it was very close. but. Then, one of the first projects I did in the art world was commissioned by Lugar Dudas. They told me, please do a curatorial project on self-publishing in Cali. So I started researching and I thought that a lot of young people my age or younger, they did a lot of publications on this kind of myth. I see a lot of things of the devil and another figures as the monster de los mangones, okay, another popular figures of the terror stories. And I asked myself why, why some generations later this still is present and still is important for people. And why the devil, why the devil is so important. But that time that I was thinking about this, making myself this question, Steffi Hessler, we met and she came visit to Cali and by that time she was reading Michael Taussig, The Dairy and Commodity, blah, 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 blah in South America. She told us what the argument or what the main idea of the book was and precisely this author made all his statements based on studies he made in Cali and its surroundings. It was a very interesting connection, and he said a lot of things about the devil, but the main idea is that the sugar cane plantation workers and the miners in this area used to make an agreement with the devil. They asked him to allow them to make more money and the devil gave them the money but they couldn't spend it on capitalization they couldn't spend it on profit, they had to spend it on vice and excess, otherwise they would die in a grotesque or very violent way there's a lot of several storytelling on people that make this deal with the devil, for me it was like a huge mythical explanation of my city. That explains that we have a mythical um, commitment with vice and excess. There is something dark, like a mythical darkness. For me it was very interesting because these filmmakers and artists from the 70s, they didn't really know Michael Taussig's ideas and they were making the films at the same time when Michael Tausis was writing his books on Cali. And for me, it was like a huge discovery to put this together. This is one part of the thing, but for this project, I work with the video pieces of Ana Maria Mijan and Giovanni Vargas that are artists from the 90s. These artists were in the middle of the filmmakers of the 70s and the self-publishing people I was researching that were younger. So they were in the middle of these generations. And what I found in their videos was this uncanny sensation. They were very different, but the similarity is that there is a narrative structure of a terror that never fully develops there is always something about to happen but never happens this was the same narrative structure that we live here with progress in latin america it's a promise that never arrived, but also is the same narrative of the drug dealing conflict here there is the promise of richness the promise of wealthy but it leads us to self-destruction And for me, linear structure, linear narrative, is something very Western. It was interesting how narrative structure has to do also with economic things, with economic aspects. This myth that is very well studied by Michael Taussig, for me it was like an explanation of our, I don't know, cosmogony, or what happens in this devil deal or this devil spell, for me is very similar to the drug dealing conflict. No, It's the promise of money that leads to self-destruction. Regarding the topic of the decentralization of the subject, it's something that haunts me a lot like how to make an exhibition that is not a representation of a topic but actually you can feel in your body the idea or the problem you want to stage. For me also was so interesting that this mythical explanation or this practice of explaining your life or explaining the acontecimientos of a town (laughs) based on metaphysical entities or non-existing entities or it doesn't matter if it's true or false what it matters is that this fiction operates in reality that was very powerful for me i wanted to uh, stage the feeling of How do you feel when you are not the master of your future or you're not the master of what is happening to you? Something else that you cannot see is controlling your life or your acts. And I wanted to stage something that you can really feel in your body. And the way I found that it could be achieved, it was through darkness. Since that moment, darkness. It started to be a very important reflection on the things I do because when you walk on darkness you really are powerless so I wanted the subject or the spectator to feel this powerlessness <laughs> I have always been with the question of why is Cali so special? I think it is, it's a very weird city. And I made myself this question after living in Bogota for five years. So when I came back, I didn't want to come back, but I think Cali trapped me. When I came back to live here, I made myself this question, like something happens here. And I think this research that we just talked about started to show me a kind of answer. And I think this city is so special because it's a black city. And we haven't fully realized how black it is. We mestizos, I think we are most of us very influenced by the black culture here. There is a lot of racism, but at the same time, I think there is a lot of issues in which we think through the black culture or we are very influenced by that. So I think that makes us a little bit different than some other cities in Colombia, at least. The relationship with rhythm that we have in the city and with sound and the relationship with, I don't know, humor or how we don't take so seriously some things, I think that comes from it, from that other relationship with time and capitalism. I was so in love with this kind of ideas and I used to romanticize them a lot and now I think I'm trying to quit and I'm trying to I'm gonna stop to think about this but I've been working in this field for like just 10 years but these 10 years have been different ways of answering this question. What I try to do in this book, Hegelian Dancer, is is not because they have something special. It's because there is another notion of time. There is another way of living time. That is very small, more on the continuously than the discreto. discrete. This philosophical problem, the continuous versus lo discreto, I think that's the problem in dancing. The Western civilization is more on the lo discreto, separar, and culturas ancestrales are more on this idea of the continuity of everything, of time, of space, etc. This idea of finding that there is a cosmogony on dancing, it's a way of to do not romanticize. Salsa Rosa is different from the Salsa of the 70s, let's say. Okay, what changes? It becomes more romantic and more sexual, explicit lyrics, and also the melodies and the rhythms are more cheesy. The Salsa of the 70s has more complex rhythms, and the topics sometimes are more politically engaged. What is interesting in Salsa Rosa is that it started to rise on the 80s that was the same decade that the drug dealing conflict arise as is fewest in Cali. The logic or the modus operandi of Salsa Rosa is pornography, also is the same modus operandi in the drug dealing conflict, like everything that used to be hidden or private comes to the outside, like for example the tits of your wife they have to show them off and how much money you have in the account you have to show it. So this logic of pornography is that everything that used to be in the inside comes to the outside. It's very baroque also and very literal. We did this with a friend of mine that is Hernan Baron and we found this coincidence together, like oh Salsa Rosa started to be on fashion in the same time where drug dealing conflict and they have these similarities in their modes operandi. Okay, let's state that there is a relationship between these two things. Something that is also important in the things I do like like in Sobredosis de Amor and the Spell on the Space, is that probably this has nothing to do. But what if we state that it does? No? So for me, it's another way of thinking through fiction, like making theoretical work or making theoretical connections. It's a fiction also, no? What if we take this intuition to the farthest we can? And for me, that's kind of how fiction operates. Regarding the political and social narrative that are present on rhythm, I haven't really think on the political and social narrative, but I think what I have found in this analysis of different rhythms it's epistemological or ontological things and I think this political and social narrative are, I don't know, embedded in these more wide aspects. So, for example, the thing that happens in Hegelian dancers is also this difference between linear structures and not linear structures and the welcoming of fairness and with welcoming of fairness how you embrace complexity that can have some echoes on political, I don't know, potential. When you embrace complexity, that's political, in a way. For me, it has to do with that complexity versus linearity and binario, binary thinking. (laughs) That moralism, for me, has to do with the idea of what is important is content and not form. And for me, material thinking liberates us from that slavery of content, not just content matter. Material things shape us, and rhythm is a material thing. And also what is interesting for me with what you were saying is that how the invisible, that is sound, shapes the visible, and that is something that we don't really trust, like We are so Westerns in that way. like We trust on words, and also words are visible. But what with the materiality that is more invisible? We don't trust on the power that it has. I haven't really thought of what drugs do to your body. (laughs) I have thought of the drug dealing conflict culture. More than consumption, it has to do with some beliefs and practices and aesthetics in the everyday. Maybe most of people have seen this drug dealing Netflix series. I haven't, but I guess, I don't know how aesthetics is represented there. I'm going to try to describe this culture is they used to see an important building somewhere else in the world, like in Washington or Budapest or whatever, and they build it here and bigger, for example. Or they have very fancy cars. And one of the things that you can really see these cultures is in women's body. (laughs) Yeah, I think that changed a lot. Like in the decades of my mother, for example, in the seventies, there was no this need to show off so, so much. So even the mannequins change. We have some mannequins here that are made on these new bodies that have fake tits and fake bats And everything is like on extreme, like extreme curves. I think the aesthetics is more like baroque aesthetics. This drug dealing culture has more to do with these kind of things, but also with the feeling that if you have money you can do whatever you want, even kill anyone, even kill whoever you want to kill. When I talk about drug dealing culture, I think of some classmates, for example, and their macho attitude of being patrones. That's more the legacy I have found th- that we all perceive of the drug dealing than reflecting of what drug consuming makes to you. I don't know if there is a story, but by chance I kind of discover a story of salsa gestures. I had to make an exhibition that was called Oído Pueblo, and they commissioned me, please do an exhibition on this writer that used to be friend of the filmmakers I talk about on the 70s. This writer is very important for my generation that is called Andres Caicedo. He wrote a novel of a bourgeois girl that became a salsa addict and she questioned her social class uh, just because of the political emancipation that salsa meant to her and it was an emancipation through her body. This is a very important novel for Colombia and for us here, Que Viva La Musica it's translated to many, to many languages. It's a very beautiful novel. He's a writer, male, and he writes like a feminine tone. So it's very interesting for many reasons, but I'm kind of tired, I don't know, for ages of being been hearing homage to him and to the artists from the 70s that just play again the films or that just reread the novel again with new readings of the writing. So I wanted to propose that there is an modus operandi implied in this novel, that is desclasamiento. I think desclasamiento is something that is axial or very important in the production of art in Cali. Like most of people do things that are inspired by popular Culture and what happened in the streets. Most of the artists here in Cali are not bourgeois people. That is different from Bogota, for example. It's people that come from the popular classes. Michel Faget wrote a test on this strategy. And she was saying that artists has always been drawn to this, has always been interested in this, uh, going to popular neighborhoods, etc. But I wanted to state that through the pieces that I was showing in this exhibition, what we are trying to find is another epistemology that is rooted on rhythm. It's not just I forgot the term, she uses the term very well and it's a very well term, but it's beyond that, it's beyond that romanticism of the poor or romanticism of the popular. You find there, through music and through dancing, that there is a kind of knowledge that you don't manage and that there is a potential revolution there, or there is another kind of knowledge that is calling you, and I think that is what the novel is about. Instead of doing an exhibition that is a homage, presenting again this novel, I did this, researching this artist, and Seeing most of the productions of these artists, I realized that most of them, they record dance moments in the neighborhoods. So what I could find reviewing all this material is that according to the economic moment, there was a different dance produced. Again, it was an hypothesis that could be fiction, but I took it as farthest as I could in this exhibition. For example, in the 60s, the countryside was very present in the lyrics and in the sound, because it was salsa that came mostly from Cuba. So the rural workers were very present on these sounds. And this led to a certain kind of dance, let's say. This was the 60s. Then, in the 70s, the influence of rock music was so important here, mostly because the relationship that we started to have with the states and the people changed the way they started to dance. They separated couples and they started to dance with another beat. The same songs, but with another beat. For me, it's also interesting how economy shapes our body or shapes, I don't know, our way of moving. Then the eighties comes Salsa Rosa and the way of dancing put the partner again together, but more together than before. They dance not like holding hands like this, but they put one body to the other and they do sexual movements while dancing. Also, this logic of pornography comes to the dance floor. That is the 80s. And then there is a big gap where nothing happens. Till 2010 or 2014 when Salsa Choque arrives. And for me, Salsa Choque is a big, big revolution (laughs) because we are very marcados por la salsa and we are like the Global Salsa Museum and that's something alastre, something that we have to carry with. Salsa is like the eternal repetition of the same. It's so weird, how can I go to a disco, to a club currently and I can dance to the same songs that my parents dance and that my grandpa dance? So that's so fucking weird that like for decades we've been listening to the same songs. When Salsa Choque appears, it's like, oh my gosh, something new can happen with this eternal repetition. And it was very potente, and also it mixed the classic salsa with the sounds of the jungle that we call marimba, with the Pacific coast that is very rural area, and also hip-hop. So it's everything. It's like The years we're living now, like we are recognizing the ancestral, but also we are in a globalization moment. Salsa choc is everything there, and the rhythm of salsa choc is very simple, but it's very powerful, I guess, like techno. For me, it was such a huge revolution, salsa choc. So I have like draw these five moments of different gestures. And this exhibition was kind of this, like, let's say that if Andrés Caicedo, this writer, would be alive, he would have seen all the evolution of what drove him crazy. I really recommend this novel. maybe the experience with techno is different than with salsa because techno is very specialized it's something that you gotta go to a certain place to listen to but here is like salsa is fucking everywhere i live in a main street of the city and if i open the windows there is three locales almacenes that are playing loud three different songs of salsa at the same time if you go in a taxi or if you go in a bus I think salsa is something that you listen to in your daily life. And when you go to the supermarket, they have strong salsa sounds in the parlantes, in the baffles, speakers. I cannot stop moving, so I kind of move when I'm picking the fruits, but people is not dancing on the supermarkets. It's very special with what happens. Like, for example, once I landed in a plane, it came from Madrid and it was on December. As soon as the plane landed, people started to sing the same salsa song. And it wasn't a very known, it was a very specialized salsa song. And I was very amazed. When you go to salsa public events, you feel how that creates community, intergenerational community, and it's so strong to answer that I don't have this moment when I said, oh my gosh, this is so good. I think it started to arrive from many, many places. The year that it became so famous, the salsa choque was also a football World Cup. The Colombian soccer team started to dance salsa choque in that World Cup. So it became something that was very well known worldwide. the salsa choque discovery and all Hegelian dancers started to happen in my head in 2014. And in 2016, I had to make a research for a historical Latino American art exhibition. I started to have the feeling that some Latino American artists started to use textile and the body to question the right angle that it was imposed by minimalism and modernism in art. So I found that very interesting why they were like opposing or creating more organic or continuous form that contradict or subvert or make more gentle the right angle. It was also the same opposition of the binary and thirdness or the discrete and the continuous it was something of what Western versus other cultures. And when I found that one of the main artists that were part of this tendency was Elio Iticica and Lydia Clark, and I was very amazed that they were raised, if I'm correct, in Rio de Janeiro. That was a city that is very close to Cali. Like, I don't know, the feeling, the vibe is very... Cali is not by the ocean, but it's very close uh, and the black heritage is very present in Cali and in Rio. And I found a text by Elio Itizica saying how his sculptures, his notion of a sculpture was transformed by his experience dancing samba. I felt identified with Elio Itizica. and it was also very interesting how the experience of a black rhythm of dancing to a black rhythm can change your notions of what is an object, or what is a material, or what is a form. For me, it was very inspiring. And it has to do with something that maybe we can call the aesthetics of the in-between, the form of the continuity, I would say, or the form of fairness. Because the right angle has to do a lot with rationality and with what the mankind creates and the other forms has to do with, I don't know, the opposite of that. Binarism in dance has not to do just with two bodies, the fairness that is created among them, but also the way you inhabit space and time in your own body. For example, binarism in dancing is when you put your whole weight on one side and then you go straight to the other side. And what you have to do in order to dance sabroso, or to dance, I don't know, more tropical, is do not go from one side to the other, but to learn to inhabit the thirdness with your body. So you have to learn to do not put your whole weight on one side to the other. You have to keep on the in-between. This binarism is not just only when two bodies met, but also within your own body what we do in this danceable lecture of hegelians we talk about these things but what i do is try to think with the dancers which kind of exercises can help understand this therness idea this inhabited in betweenness with your body we design together these exercises what you're saying, I think is my main concern in arts. I think most of us, we tend to be very conservative regarding the dispositives, the exhibition as dispositive, and I get very bored. The way I have found to deal with this is to think which kind of experience of the body I'm proposing to the spectator. So I try to have in mind All the material aspects that are related to the body, and that leads me to think of the senses. How do I provide? Because your vision is so rooted with linear thinking, with distance, with binarism, with explanation, with language. And how can I promote another more deep? touch to language experience, are more bodily experience. And in order to do that, I have to think in the other senses. The way you receive the information through other senses is less codified than the information you receive through your eyes. This wasn't something programmatic, something I said, oh, I have to work with the senses is something that i started to find trying to imagine my own body in the exhibition and what i want to perceive more than a book displayed on walls so sound has become very important in this regard i never said okay i'm gonna be a curator of sound and i'm gonna do an exhibition of sound it came as a tool to dismantle this oculocentrismo experience so for me darkness and sound has been a very useful tool to make the spectator be aware of his or her body in another way inside the white cube we as curators tend to be very much on our head and that is very Western. And our will, our voluntad, like I want to do this and this has to do with this because they are under the same topic. We don't usually recognize that the space has agency. They have something to say. Each corner, each color, each light temperature has something to say. We have to think more materialistic-wise than thematic wise sometimes. That's why I insist a lot on the body because thinking of the bodily experience is thinking materially. What is interesting and revolutionary of art producing is that you don't know before you do it. Our whole culture, our whole professional development in art is very como de corporación, como que you have to know before you do, but what makes art something different from the rest of the world is that you realize what you want to do and what you want to say while doing it, the performativity of art. That is also very problematic, what you say, like when institution ask you to know, previously. And I think that's very revolutionary, like how do you defend in a way that? For me it's difficult. Something that has taught me a lot regarding this thing we were discussing about the space is that it's not just my idea what is important, it's not just the way I associate things. Like the other, call it the art piece, call it the space, is teaching me something back this questioning of my power it's also a material experience how do i allow the materiality to talk to me to question me that has to do with what we were talking first of the decentralization of the subject how you decentralize yourself and allow the non-you to speak to you the materiality to speak to you an exhibition can dance. That question links a little bit with what we were talking previously. I think that one strategy to deal with a space in a more bodily way is to think of composition in music. That you are arranging different intensities and different textures. Not to create a narrative a structure, but to create an experience of difference, so you feel an arrangement of intensities. I would say that. I think of that when I have to do things in a space that I'm not currently doing, but when I did, that was useful for me, like thinking I was composing a song. The song doesn't have to lead us anywhere, but make us feel variations of intensities. I think of that when I deal with space, and I think that answer a little bit the question of an exhibition can dance. This question of why Hegelian? I haven't read Hegel. All I remember of Hegel was what I was told in the school, and when they teach you philosophy in school, they do it in a very simplistic way, let's say. What they told me in school about Hegel is that he proposed a structure of thesis, antithesis, synthesis, no? This structure, this is the only thing I knew about Hegel, and I think I talk about this in the book. I was in a dance floor with European friends and Brazilian friends, and they were dancing at the same time. Seen these two groups of people of different nationalities and backgrounds dance than I realized when I was looking at them dance. One is binary and the other one is not binary. So I thought these are Hegelian dancers, the binary ones. But then I start questioning myself maybe Hegel wasn't binary. Maybe they taught me in a school a binary Hegel, but probably Hegel was trying to challenge binarism. I don't know. I haven't read him, so I don't know. I just let it like that, because what I wanted to propose in that project is that whether we are inhabiting binarism or challenging it, but we are something in between that, enacting it or dismantling it, in both cases it could be Hegelian and who cares if Hegel was binaries or not so i think it was a catchy name so i left it i wanted to point how these abstract philosophic questions are embodied in us so that's why i left the name <laughs> I was going to say something anecdotic, that's why I was thinking, oh, this makes sense or not. I was trained on contemporary dance while I was studying art, when I was already a psychologist. Besides my experience on dance floors with salsa, I also was trained in yoga, ballet, and contemporary dance. And for me, it was in contact improvisation. It was very powerful, the philosophic ideas that arise from this bodily experience. This experience, most of the questions has to do with the other, with the otherness, as you mentioned with your experience of the mirror with techno. Um, It was a very challenging and meaningful experience, these dance classes. And I also have many dancers' friends, which I continually talk to about these ideas. I think these experiences of dancing are experiences of radical listening and listening with other senses and listening with your whole body, listening beyond rational thinking or language. I have found them very emancipating, I would say. It's really to build another way of thinking. What we were saying previously with the curating in the space situation is also listening the space. So how can we expand this notion of listening to not just what we are used to? We think of listening and we think of headphones and we think of we are sat listening to something, but listening could be something more. How do you say extrapolado a otras situaciones? Like listening is a way you position yourself towards the world or towards surrounds you. I don't know if it's a methodology, but it's an attitude of openness, something like that, that could be applied to any procedure. For example, in school we are told this diagram, I don't know if you're seeing it, these two. is the talker and the listener and they are separated and there are moments of utterances that are very well separated. But in sex or in dance, this linearity of this diagram that is very mechanicistic explodes. Everything is simultaneously. So there is no active and passive and everything is mixed. And for me, that's an epistemological experience. Everything that challenges the a structure of what I've been told in a school, for me, it's like, oh my gosh, there is no subject and object. There is a continuum of agencies. And that could be learned through dancing or with the encounter with another body, that could be sex. That idea is very powerful, like how can epistemological and cosmological switch? can be produced through bodily experiences. I think that's my obsession. It's not a rational process that you're gonna learn through a philosophy class. What you're saying made me think of that we don't trust enough or doesn't listen enough to this kind of bodily experiences. For example, the one you mentioned with the bicycle that experience that seems so simple that you become the bicycle for me that's an epistemological situation and with the exhibition making i'm interested in how to create this positive that make us feel that kind of things you stop being a subject but not that someone tells you this as a topic, that you really experience it in your body. How to do that? I'm very obsessed with that question. I don't do things with my hands. I don't paint, I don't sculpt, etc. And I became creator randomly. That wasn't a plan. It was more because I used to write before the art world. So, ah, she writes, can you create something? something like that? My first experience in the art world was writing and I wanted to be more an artist than a curator or a critic. So my statement at that time was, okay, so I'm gonna think uh, the materiality of text and the materiality of the immaterial that are ideas. I was trying to think writing as a physical experience. I'm very interested in that. Because the materiality of writing is not just the evident material components that you have a pen, that you have a oh sheet computer, etc. But also the rhythm which you write, if you write fast, or if you write slowly, that shapes a lot of your thought. Rhythm is part of the materiality of writing. And every single stupid little thing, for example, we write from left to right. What if we invert that, that we take for granted? For the danceable lectures, I used to do fanzines and publications, experimenting with these very basic things, like we think that we know how to read because we learn it when we are seven years old. What if I do a fanzine that makes us doubt that we know how to read? So I wrote backwards and I also wanted to create this fanzine as a dispositive for me to write slower. So I did it all handwriting and I did it backwards. It was like a meditative experience. It was a corporeal experience also. I was very obsessed with these subtleties and with these things of writing that seems obvious. The size of the letter, for example. Where we place some text when we are doing layout. All these little things. Now, I have been trying to share them through workshops when I try to explain that for me, thinking materiality it's thinking these stupid little things, I have a hard time <laughs> explaining why it's so important. Because it sounds silly, like I just changed the direction of writing. That that sounds like a stupid caprichoso something. But for me that was very important. What I was interested in is that people sound like little kids learning again to read when they read it out loud. That was one of the first things I did and every time someone asked me for a studio visit, I felt this power relation that scared me and what I did first was, okay, read this out loud. <laughs> this is my piece, this is my artwork, so the silly person was the other and not me. And I also create like a lecture where people were reading backwards. So. Something that put this in the foreground is that the public gets exasperated and that shows us how we don't accept slowness. We hate the slowness. And the reaction of the public was the evidence of that. That came against me, like people get very bored and I think they thought I did stupid things and I quit. <laughs> I quit writing backwards. The changes on these subtle materialities of the book as dispositive, for example, or the catalog as dispositive, is what makes them look as a dispositive and not something neutral. If you don't do these things that you designer did and just take for granted how a catalog must be, you just take it in your hand as a reader and you say, okay, another catalog. And you don't see it. You don't actually see it as a dispositive. For me it's very interesting these alterations of the materiality, it's a way of not taking for granted. Those are the interesting bits, otherwise you are just using the format of a catalogue as a container where you put just content and you think that container is neutral and it's the same as we were talking previously of the space it's not a container it's not a neutral container (laughs)
0: the present the body Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Women's Center for Excellence, a research project by the Institute Art, Gender, Nature, fh Academy of Art and Design in Basel, conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of women in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please visit dertank.ch That's dertank.ch Or request information or subscribe to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch That's info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch Recording and editing: Sonia Fernandez-Pan. Final editing and voiceover: Elena Ziese. Music: Steven McAvoy. Research team: Tabea Rothfuchs and Marion Ritzmann. Press and communication: Anna Franke and Sarina Scheidegger. Technical support: Esther Hunsiger, Karin Bohrer, Konrad Siegel and Chris Handberg. Copyright by Institute Art, Gender, Nature, fh 2021.